0: Part 3 Chapter 7 of Mountains in the Mist This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Lan Mountains in the Mist by Frank W. Borum Mount Disappointment Hamilton Hume was the first of that gallant band of overlanders of whose splendid exploits Australians are so justly proud. He, it was, who led the first pathfinders from Sydney to Melbourne. In the course of that tedious and historic pilgrimage there were two great and memorable moments, one of exultation and one of depression. The first was when Hume, on ahead of the party, suddenly stopped, waved his hat in boyish glee and came running back to announce to his comrades his discovery of the Murray. The other was when, exhausted and famished, they sighted the mountains that we know as the Hume Range. The party were worn out and begged to be allowed to give up and return. Hume pointed to a mountain ahead of them. From that summit, he assured them, we shall see the ocean, and shall go back and tell of our success. The mountain was climbed, but when, after a desperate struggle, they reached the top, nothing met their eyes but miles and miles of ridges and gullies covered with trees. They named it Mount Disappointment, and, to their everlasting credit, pressed on and safely reached their goal. It is not the only episode of the kind that glorifies those early days. What shall we say of Burke and Wills and King as they stagger into the camp at Cooper's Creek after their long trudge across the dusty heart of the continent only to find the camp forsaken and death staring them in the face? Many of us have never crossed the Hume Range but we have clambered up Mount Disappointment for all that. Perhaps of all disappointments, the disappointments of childhood are the most bitter. I know a home in a city. I saw it one Christmas Eve. What romp and revelry! What excitement and clapping of hands! What gay decorations and graceful festoons! What suggestions and speculations! How would Father Christmas come? And when would he arrive? And what would he bring? How carefully all the stockings were hung up, especially babies. But that night, Father met with some boon companions. Little sleepers, already restless with excitement, were still further disturbed at midnight by unsteady steps and clumsy noises. And then, at dawn, Nervous little fingers clutch eagerly at the pendant stockings, only to find them as empty as ever. And whilst little fingers are grasping at empty stockings, little feet are making their first pilgrimage up the slopes of Mount Disappointment. A full stocking cannot contain so much of bliss as an empty one can hold of bitterness. Again, I know a home in the country. It is a farmhouse, miles and miles from everywhere. There is a little blue-eyed, flaxen-haired bit of innocence there, who often sits out by the big white gate, looking along the endless road that loses itself at last over the ridge. And she wonders, as she sits there, what the great world is like to which the long road leads. This morning, Things are early astir. Daisy is harnessed to the spring cart for father is going to town and in the evening he will bring blue eyes a beautiful doll from the wonderful store in the city. Oh, what excitement all day! Blue eyes can scarcely eat. Long before father can possibly have got to town she is straining her little blue eyes in looking along the endless dusty road "'to see if there is any sign of Daisy and the spring cart. "'What questions Mother has to answer "'about that wonderful doll that is coming? "'And at last, far off, there appears a speck over the ridge. "'Blue Eyes is sure that it is Daisy and Dad and Dolly. "'And so it is, clever little Blue Eyes. "'At least it is Daisy and Dad and But Dolly, Dad, had forgotten. Blue Eyes does not understand all about the merchants and the markets and the warehouses and the bank and the rest of the jargon that had worried her father and banished the wonderful doll from his mind. Blue Eyes only knows that there is no Dolly after all. Poor, sobbing, broken-hearted little Blue Eyes... Blue Eyes is climbing for the first time the rugged slopes of Mount Disappointment. Yes, Mount Disappointment is a hard, hard mountain to climb, yet its stony slopes are always crowded. The trying examination that was so nearly passed, the coveted situation so nearly gained, the hoped-for competency so nearly made, the buried love so nearly a bride, and think of the inexpressible disappointments of womanhood and motherhood and widowhood. It is hard to climb a mountain heavily laden at any time, and the aching and breaking hearts of these sorrowful mountaineers are the heaviest loads of all. And the worst of it is that it is very difficult to know what to say to these climbers with their torn hands, their bleeding feet and heavy loads. It seems the veriest cant to tell them that it is all right, that it is all for the best, that everything will turn out happily after all, that it is better not to be able to see the blue waters from the lofty peak, that the little fingers are richer with their empty stockings than they would have been had those stockings been bursting with treasures and fancy telling poor little blue eyes that she is better without her doll perhaps the best way of dealing with these people is to tell them of some of the pilgrims who have passed this way before them some very distinguished travellers have had to climb mount disappointment at some time or other and just because they were distinguished their records come to be written and so it comes to pass That we can tell how it all turned out perhaps if all the undistinguished people had left their records too we should find that they had fared just as bravely who can tell here is a famous story to begin with oliver cromwell then unknown to fame and john hampden once climbed mount disappointment sick and tired of the absurdities of charles the first the two cousins resolved to emigrate. The Mayflower had left Plymouth seventeen years earlier, and a prosperous little Puritan commonwealth had sprung up across the Atlantic. A vessel bound for North America was lying in the Thames. Hampden and Cromwell booked their passages, and were actually on board, waiting for the good ship to sail. At the last moment came messengers from the King, forbidding the two would-be emigrants to leave the country. Charles Little knew that, by signing that order, he was signing his own death warrant. Hampden and Cromwell stepped ashore, bitterly disappointed. And that bitter disappointment gave Cromwell to England and shaped the whole course of our imperial history. Oliver Goldsmith climbed Mount Disappointment. In 1756, after having obtained a doctor's degree, he found himself without a shilling in his pocket. He pounded drugs, Macaulay says, and ran about London with files for charitable chemists. Then he aspired to the unambitious post of mate to a naval hospital. He presented himself at Surgeon's Hall as an applicant for the position. To his great chagrin, he was rejected, The record in the college book reads, James Bernard, mate to a hospital, Oliver Goldsmith found not qualified for ditto. He was bitterly disappointed. In his disappointment, he seized a pen and began to write. Eight years later, the Vicar of Wakefield, one of our very greatest classics, was given to the world. Genius, to use Mr W. J. Lacey's words, transmuted Goldsmith's Disappointment into a golden service to English letters. William Wordsworth knew what it was to climb Mount Disappointment. In 1792, the French Revolution being at its height, he visited Paris. He was in his 22nd year, and the blood of the September massacres was scarcely dry. He was an impulsive boy when, as Rosaline Masson puts it, Rudderless and under full sail of impetuous feelings and vain hopes, he tossed upon that dangerous sea. He even entertained and dallied with the notion that he himself might become leader of the Girondists. But the heroic dream ended ignominiously. To his intense humiliation and disappointment, his uncle stopped his supplies. That is putting it rather prosaically he himself reduces it to poetry dragged by a chain of harsh necessity so seemed it now i thankfully acknowledge forced by the gracious providence of heaven to england i returned else though assured that i both was and must be of small weight no better than a landsman on the deck of a ship struggling with a hideous storm doubtless I should have then made common cause with some who perished, happily perished too, a poor mistaken and bewildered offering should to the breast of nature have gone back with all my resolutions, all my hopes, a poet only to myself, to men useless. And thus, as Mrs. Masson puts it, the patriot of the world descended, "'Penniless and reluctant from his Paris attic, "'and returned, crestfallen and disappointed, to England. "'And the laureate Wordsworth was saved to literature. "'But I need not multiply illustrations. "'Everybody knows of the great disappointment of Charles Dickens "'in missing an opportunity of going on the stage. "'Everybody knows of Nathaniel Hawthorne's dismissal from the customs house.' everybody knows of lord tenterden's misery at being defeated by a rival candidate for a chorister's place and everybody knows of mr spurgeon's disappointment in relation to his application for admission to college and therefore everybody knows that charles dickens's disappointment enriched our literature beyond all possibility of calculation that hawthorne's dismissal from the customs house did almost as much for our American cousins, that Lord Tenterden's rejection as a chorister gave to the British law courts one of their most distinguished judges, and that Mr Spurgeon's humiliation proved a turning point in a life for which millions glorify God. That is the beauty of Mount Disappointment. Those first overlanders did not see the ocean as they had hoped to do from its summit, but, as they afterwards discovered, they were on the right road. They were never so near to their destination as when they stood on its blunted peak. Mount Disappointment lay in their track and brought them nearer to their goal. That, I say, is the beauty of our disappointments. Half the ironical and cynical nonsense that is written about the difference between the anticipation of marriage and the experience of marriage is written in ignorance of this great fact. It is true that a pair of lovers look toward marriage as a roseate romance. It will be to them an endless courtship, a perpetual honeymoon. And, afterwards, seen from without, It appears to have been all an illusion. There is constant anxiety. There is a struggle for a livelihood. There are sick children and heavy sorrows. But get into their hearts, and as they look back upon those days when they walked hand in hand and built romantic castles in the rainbow-tinted air, ask if they have really been disappointed. Marriage has meant to them an infinitely sweeter thing than the thing of which they used to dream, and it has left upon their characters a stamp of nobility that the realisation of their sentimental mirage could never have produced. Pretty much the same thing happens in relation to our faith. To a young convert, religion is all romance. It is all emotion, rapture and spiritual transports. As life goes on, and his devotion works its way into all the stern realities of a workaday world, it becomes less and less a thing of catchy choruses and poetical phrases. But, with the loss of the sentimental side of faith, he gains a certain inward grandeur that gives a depth to his thought and feeling that he never knew before, and that imparts to all who know him an impression of sterling dignity and splendid uprightness. I knew a fine old man who had two sons. The sons were not Christians, and the father, as he drew near to the gates of the grave, used to pray that he might die a death of such peace and tranquillity that his sons would be compelled to offer Balaam's entreaty. Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like his." The old man sickened, and the sons were sent for. As the father neared the borderland, his brain became confused, and his body racked with pain. His deathbed was really a terrible affair. Now here is a poor old pilgrim climbing Mount Disappointment with the death-sweat on his brow. Yet see what happened. The sons argued that if their father being the saint that he was, found death so dreadful, things would go hardly with them at the last. And they kneeled by their father's deathbed and set out on pilgrimage. And so, Mount Disappointment is a wonderful place. In its modesty and self-depreciation, it tricks us simple-minded pilgrims into the impression that we are on the wrong road. But it is all right. Hume, travelling by way of Mount Disappointment, found the ocean after all. The honeymoon couple lost the glitter, but they found the gold. The convert lost the outward glamour, but he found the inward glory. Cromwell and Hampden, Goldsmith and Wordsworth, clambered up Mount Disappointment in the path of destiny. The fact is that the painful climb up the stony slopes of Mount Disappointment is God's own wonderful way of bringing us into his promised land. End of part three, chapter seven.